hockey fans, welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks Volume 20. I am here tonight, the beautiful Sunset Studio, with the always popular friend of the show, Mr. Terry Whalen. We're here to talk about another fantastic hockey movie, one of, one of my fave, one of my faves of all time, Mystery Alaska. Hey, Terry, what's up, buddy? Not too much, uh, Chris. Great to be back uh, in the studio with yourself and uh, Andy on the board. And uh, yeah, we got a we got a good one here tonight. We yep. got a good one here tonight. I like this one too. Yeah, and it's exciting to be back in the studio to do one of these. Um, you know, so we got some social social distancing laws that are um, a little more relaxed. Hi. So uh, we can get away with these back in the studio now. So yeah, great to uh, be here. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about. Uh, let's get this started here. Mystery Alaska. Well, if sudden death was the diehard of hockey movies, then Mystery Alaska is if the poster is to be believed, the Rocky of hockey movies. Mm. It's a prose versus Joe's story, set in Mystery, Alaska, a drinking town with a hockey problem. <laughs> the LA Times called it Northern Exposure meets the longest yard. Accurate. But when we look at the people involved, it's really more picket fences meets Mighty Ducks. This is a good hockey movie, Chris. It's not without its flaws, which caused it to be by far the least successful movie that we've looked at here on the show. And given the amount of talent involved, that's something to unpack. However, the things this movie gets right about the game and about what the game can mean to people and communities, that makes it a fun watch. I couldn't agree more. It was it's such a fun movie. Uh, okay, to start, is there actually a town called Mystery Alaska? And did the NHL ever travel there for real? Uh, no, sir. This movie is entirely fictitious, location included. The writers took some inspiration from two actual events. In 1923, then heavyweight champ Jack Dempsey was convinced to hold a title fight, not in New York or Chicago, but in the back of beyond town of Shelby, Montana. Also, the 1905 Dawson City Nuggets, who challenged for the Stanley Cup that year and traveled over 6,500 kilometers in three weeks by dog sled, boat, and train to Ottawa to meet the Senators. The Nuggets lost 9-2 and 23-2. So a story idea was there. What if a small town team in the hinterlands hosted an NHL team? Ah. So if there's no place called Mystery Alaska, then where did they shoot the movie? One thing this movie has going for it, Chris, is its setting. That town looks real, and that's no accident. The production designers looked first in Alaska, but the lack of winter sunlight made them head to outside Canmore, Alberta. Rather than trying to shoehorn the action into an existing town, they took 10 weeks to build a town from scratch. They built some of the buildings themselves, they bought some Quonset huts from area farmers, and they bought the set of CBC TV's North of 60, which had just finished shooting its final season nearby. So Lynx River in the Northwest Territories became mystery in Alaska. That's crazy. Yeah. When, uh, when I talk about this as a good-looking film, I mean that literally. It's a picture-postcard town nestled in the mountains, and the filmmakers take full advantage of their surroundings. Uh, Robert Altman's revisionist western from 1971, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, that's also set in the frontier. It's renowned for its set design, and this movie rivals that for setting. And the thing, Chris, these movies, you know, there's no green screen no. like we're so used to now. 
with the superheroes and, and the space cowboys. Yeah. What did you think of that, uh, that opening credit sequence? It made me want to move to Mystery Alaska. <laughs> and wish, I wish I was born there. Um, skating down through that river in the mountains. Oh, my God. I mean, that's a dream. Just the sound of the skates. You're the only one there. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it, skates, the skates cutting on the ice. Yeah. That, uh, that great, uh, you know, native-infused music in the background. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think one thing, too, Chris, uh, the skater... You know, it was just uh, just a stick yeah, that's and it. gloves, right? That's yeah, it. and and one of the many times you'll see this movie, you know, really harkens back to hockey's you know shiny roots. Yeah, with it, and with it wasn't it. someone who couldn't skate. Yeah, indeed, no, indeed. Yeah. It was uh, no, that was I from the opening moment of the movie, I was hooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then sure. and then it comes right to the uh, to the locker room. Yeah, and the skate down and, to the rink. Yeah, that would be like a little boy's dream. You skate out of your dressing room down a down a, a steep hill to the rink. Yeah, the little zigzag down. I mean, come on. I always was waiting. I was I was like, is anyone gonna go into the snowbank going around one of these turns? <laughs> I was waiting for like one of those funny moments where some guy plows through a snowbank yeah. trying to get on yeah, the yeah, ice, and it yeah. never happened. But yeah, but yeah, no, that's a, that's a dream. Yeah, for me, and like you could skate around the town. Skate around the town. What could be better than that? Again, they took just such great advantage yeah. of the uh, of the setting that they uh, created for themselves. They certainly did. So. Let's talk about the talent in front of the camera. This this movie had an amazing cast. An amazing cast and a large cast. Yeah. Uh, you know, the very definition of an ensemble, Chris. Totally. Yeah, and we can't do everyone. So uh, how about a shout out to the Canadians involved? Uh, the characters Tree, Stevie Weeks, Connor Banks, the Winnetka brothers, Tinker Conley. They're all Canucks. Mm -hmm. And they could all skate a little bit, which always helps in a hockey movie. Uh, Maury Chaikin plays the lawyer, a longtime presence on Canadian uh, film and television, and Lolita Davidovich from Toronto is the mayor's wife. I'd like to give a special shout-out to Terry David Mulligan as the doctor. Those of us of a certain age, <laughs> old, we see TDM, we know there's going to be good rockin' tonight. Can't help you on that one, Terry. I'm too young. You're going to have to ask your parents. You uh, well, I'm going to I'm going to mention it to my parents. Yeah, that's right. There was a lot happening in the 1980s beside your birth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> TDM also had he, Terry Dave Mulligan also had a role in uh, a Canadian movie, maybe a great great Canadian movie from 1996 called Hardcore Logo. Okay. Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll mention that. We're going to be able to come back to that one a little later on. All right. So. Uh, I, I'd say the biggest star at the time of this movie was Burt Reynolds. Of course, yeah. Yeah, he played the judge. Uh, he'd been acting since the 1950s. He was huge in the 70s and 80s. Not uh, his first sports movie either. Yeah, and, uh, The Longest Yard yeah. from 1974. Still a classic, right? Yeah. Uh, and Burt Reynolds, he was hot. He was coming off the only Oscar nomination of his career for Boogie Nights. Yeah. Uh, he lost to Robin Williams for Goodwill Hunting. Uh, and, of course, we can't go without mentioning the other, the other lead, Hank Azaria. Of course, if Hank Azaria found the vaccine for COVID-19, the lead in his obituary would still be he was the voice of Mo and Apu and the comic book guy and yeah. Professor Frank and Chief Wiggum. And All other, the best voices. Uh, yeah, on, on The Simpsons. That's yeah, right. he'd been doing that for 25-odd years. Yeah. yeah. Amazing uh, cast. Yeah, Unreal. indeed. Uh, is there anyone you'd like to, uh, like to talk about? 
Well, we could mention a couple of the cameos. Um, first of all, Mike Myers, of course. Yes, yes. Um, as Donnie Schultzhofer, one of the announcers, <laughs> uh, the hockey announcers. Who would you say, who would he remind you of as a hockey announcer, Terry? Well, maybe I think that's a pretty obvious shout out to uh, to Mr. Don Graves-Cherry. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Mike Myers, I thought, fit perfect in that role. Um, and another Canadian. Yeah, uh, again, uh, Donnie Schultzhofer, in from Flin Flon. Yeah, in from what they Flin said. Flon. Yeah, he, yeah. he ad-libbed. He ad-libbed that whole thing on an L.A. soundstage. Yeah. And uh, he's playing off Jim Fox, who's the color guy for, right. the, uh, for the Kings. Yeah. Uh, since the 1980s and to this day, uh, you know, still works, uh, works with Los Angeles. Um, did you have a particular line? Well, there was a couple, but I think the one I can mention on the show is, uh, this is hockey. Not rocket surgery. Again, a great one, right? The one I the one yeah. I liked was uh, uh, they asked him, "What do you think after the mystery has the big first uh, period?" And he's uh, very pro for them. And he says, "I love them. I want to clean them up, adopt them, and raise them as my own." <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just yeah. unreal. Great lines. Funny and there were so many cameos. Yeah. Uh, the little Richard cameo, obviously, uh, and the role that he played in the movie, I thought was just hilarious. That that bit really worked. Yeah, that, totally. That, that bit Ice worked. Ice in the team. Ice in the team. And yeah. li little Richard, the self-styled king and queen of rock and roll. And uh, he, little Richard Penniman, he just passed away. That's right. Yeah, uh, you know, right, last month, the month. Richard. Yeah, is exactly it. But you're right; the bit works. And uh, and what it put me in mind of Chris was the uh, the very popular prop bet we see now on the Super Bowl. Right. Right. You know, uh, this past year in the Super Bowl, uh, uh, Demi Lovato sang the Super Bowl, and the the over under was two minutes. Right. Uh, and the, the, un the national anthem. Yeah, yeah. the national anthem, and the yeah. un the under hit. Of course. Yeah, so I guess the, the lesson is if uh, if Little Richard is singing, you uh, you want to take the over. Yeah, I mean, just just the, the, one of the one of the best scenes. I thought it fit perfectly. Just like one of those little advantages that the town had to take advantage of, yeah, of yeah. the New York Rangers. Let them stand there and listen to a three and a half, four minute national anthem. Yeah, and then throw O Canada on top. Exactly. Of that. Yeah. yeah. So it was. It but was. There well was done. so many great cameos. Who? Which ones did you? Uh, did you uh, like the most? Again, you, you saw also Barry Melrose yep. and Steve Levy from uh, ESPN yeah. doing their bit. Uh, Doug McLeod was the play-by-play -play man uh, for the Mystery Rangers game. He uh, was with the, uh, the Penguins for a couple years in the 1980s, 1990s. He spent the last 20 uh, years uh, at Minnesota calling uh, Golden Gopher games right. for the, for the university, NCAA. Yeah. And, and also, of course, now, the play-by-play -play guy, uh, it, it was, and uh, the color guy was, was Phil Esposito. Yeah. And... A lot of the listeners, I don't think Chris really realized maybe what a what a titan of the NHL Phil Esposito mm -hmm. was, and and I came across one stat, and I and I I want to ask you this. Yeah. I I saw that in 1970-71, Phil Esposito had 550 shots on goal. Yeah, only once in the last 50 years has anyone had more than 450. Has only once has anyone come within a hundred of that total, yeah. and that was Alex Ovechkin, 0809, and he finished with 528, and he played an extra game. Now, am, am I wrong to be amazed by that? Absolutely not. Um, just just seeing like, and I have to admit, I'm one of those guys who doesn't know how big of an NHL titan. Yeah, Phil Esposito was. I think of him, you know, in the Summit series, sure. and I think of him more as like, you know, an emotional leader and like a captain. I, I looked Correct. back after seeing him on the show or in the movie. Uh, sorry, uh, 
I went back and looked at some of his NHL stats. Yeah. And, and his career accomplishments are, are phenomenal. The numbers. The number of, of league awards he had, the Art Ross trophies he's won. He's won the Pearson. He's, he's won the Hart. Um, that season he, that he had 550 shots on goal, he scored 76 goals and had 76 assists, leading the league with 152 points. Yeah. And his shooting percentage was near 14. So, I mean, this is elite stuff at a, from a guy. And I, I didn't even know who his teammates were. I knew Bobby Orr. Yeah. Turns out Bobby Orr had over 100 assists. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Someone but, was feeding him. Yeah, exactly. So I, was, I looked up. I was trying to see. And you probably remember who his, te- who his line mates were. Right. Ken Hodge. Ken Hodge. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who's, uh, wouldn't be Freddie Stanfield. No. No. Uh, let me think now. Who else? Give me the initials. JB. Johnny Busick. Yeah. Of course. I believe that was the top line. And, yeah. And they, uh, they obviously dominated that year. And we were talking about that year. That year in hockey was right after the expansion of the NHL. A lot yeah. was going on. Yeah, a couple of years in. But these guys were already, they were at the top of their game. Yeah. And uh, again, just a, an example, another example of the amount of, of talent that the, the producers yeah. were able to draw. To, to this project, it, it right? It is, yeah. yeah. It, it's awesome. And, so, and, yeah, you're uh, totally right to be amazed by that stat. That's I thought so. Maybe never going to be touched again. And in Ovi, um, I think you said, you told me he had over 400 a uh, few times. In yes, his yeah, yeah, yeah. But even that is is unbelievable in today's game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it leaves us really one person to uh, talk about, Chris, now, of course, is Russell Crowe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who's, uh, who is the star of this whole thing. And uh, he has a great rapport with Mary McCormick, who plays his wife. And she's gone on to a very successful career in TV that continues today. They, uh, they have the husband and wife uh, parent thing going on very, very well. Um, Crow seems to be one of Hollywood's good guys. Uh, he bought everyone team jackets with their numbers on them. Uh, he made a speech at the start of filming to uh, tell everyone how much this movie meant to him. Uh, he hosted watch parties for the 98 Olympics that were going on in Nagano. So when Team Canada played, he'd have the cast and crew, he'd get them together, and the beers were so on So he bought Russell. in. He was, he was all in. Without a doubt, right? Yeah. And, and he was about to go on a great run. Three of his next four movies would be nominated for Best Picture Oscars, and he would be nominated for Best Actor twice, winning once. Yeah, this was the prime of his career for right. sure. And are you not entertained? Are you not entertained in the <laughs> gladiator? What a classic, right? Yeah, it was big. It brought back the sword and sandals epics for a short run. Yeah. Yeah, here he plays Sheriff John <laughs> Beebe, elder statesman of the Saturday game, and therefore the guy all the players look up to. Uh, in the movie, Crow War number 10, and, and I asked you this last week, Chris, mm-hmm. I said, Russell Crowe in this movie wears number 10, because he of an NHL Hall of Famer. Of course. And, and I asked you, and tell the people who you guessed. Of course, Guy Lafleur. Again, and then yeah. I told you, <laughs> I told you, Wrong. get over that hab. I know. You got to get over that hab bias, right? Yeah. So I asked you again. I said an all-timer. But you gave me a hint. Well, I got an all-timer from the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, and you were able to respond with. Ron Francis. Which is the correct answer, yeah. yes. Ron Francis. And uh, Russell Crowe said this about Ron Francis. He said, from what I've seen of the game, this is just the type of player my character would be. He's just Mr. Consistency, a very internalized sort of man, and his real stuff just comes out on the ice. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know, even remember the stats that Ron Francis put again, up in the NHL. Of, yeah, again, another, another all-timer. Yeah. Um, after Crow agreed to do the movie, he went on a road trip with the Pittsburgh Penguins for 
research purposes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, after a couple of games, Ron Francis went to the owner and said, you know, this Crow, he's a great guy, but we'll not win another game on this swing with him around, right? With the party and the going <laughs> yeah. on. So uh, uh, Beebe's uh, described, his character is uh, described as a cross between Bobby Bond and Moose DuPont. I, I love that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a bit of a backhanded compliment, though. They say he's the one slow guy on the team. I know. And it's here, Chris, that we have to talk about the Kiwi's ability on skates. Well, you know, again, I don't think we've seen someone star like this, a, a big Hollywood actor who actually could skate. Right. Uh, Rob Lowe, the recent example we discussed. Right. I, and I, the same thing with Russell Crowe. Um, you can tell the moment he steps on the ice that he's not a hockey player. Yeah. It's the bobbing up and down, yep, the sure. straight back and forth, no side-to-side -side motions, yep. typical of someone who's learning to skate. Right. And, um, yeah, again, quite obvious that he's not a skater. Right. They were, uh, again, uh, you know, his hair was perfect. His hair was always perfect. Yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, they, they had a five-week training camp, and his double was a guy named Brad Turner, who had a cup of coffee with the New York Islanders. Mm -hmm. As we noted, they had a lot of Canadian actors who could at least get around on skates. Most of the mystery doubles and the New York Ranger players were from the University of Calgary. Go Dinos. Yep. And uh, along with some beer leaguers to, to fill it out. Um, and as you said, I think they did a much better job of hiding it than, than Rob, the Rob Lowe in Young. Yeah, Rob Blood. Lowe had too many... Uh, too many scenes, I guess, well, where well, again, they couldn't and, and, hide it. Yeah, and that's right. And this movie's not called BB. Right. You know? That's true. Yeah. yeah. So it was a you know, he's a team, team first guy here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as we said before, you know, Chris, hockey is not easy to shoot. Uh, it takes creative camera work, mobile cameras, clever editing to make the game look real. Yeah. And of course, most of the movies we've seen are indoors. That's exactly right. So uh, this movie was shot uh, January to April 1998. And I don't got to tell you, it's yeah, cold I would in, imagine. In, in, in those parts that yeah. time of the year. And when making any movie, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah. They saved most of the hockey footage until late in the shoot. This gave the actors more time to practice, work on set plays, and they hoped for the weather to warm up a little. However, there was a Chinook, and they had to bring in the NHL's ice guy to save the day. So while this movie celebrates pond hockey... The game between Mystery and the Rangers is on artificial ice. Even though the talent level of the players involved was lower uh, than the other movies we've looked at, um, the action here looks good. Right. I, I think you agree, Chris. Oh, totally. I thought uh, the action was great in this movie, and, and it's important not to, for them not to try to have too much. Yeah. I think, I think they had just the, just the right amount of, of hockey action, and it's interesting that it was they had to bring in the NHL guy because the, how much experience did that guy have making outdoor ice at the time? Right, you know. Yeah, so. they. Uh, I think this movie it really benefited from being outside, you know. And again, it got the little things right. Right. Uh, when when the team came onto the ice, uh, who was the first player on the ice? The goalie. Yeah, it wasn't Russell Crowe. No. Right, because you know, Hollywood star doesn't come first. The goalie. The comes goalie first. comes first. Yeah, yeah. And, and like and, you said, he was a team guy. Yeah, and the uh, and and again, when they start that Saturday game, they toss sticks. Yeah, exactly. Right? They toss sticks, yeah. and uh, they have a bully to start. Right, they tap, you know, tap ice, and uh, just the way the boys do it in ball hockey. Yeah. Yeah, you know, here in Hong Kong, and yeah. and everywhere where you'd play with an official, right? Right. Um, it's those little things yeah. that really, really helped, and and finally. I, I'd be remiss without mentioning, I think, those jerseys. 
those mystery, uh, just they're just they look great. They do. the mo- The whole movie looked great. The whole like, movie and, looked great. And you you were right to say. And the best part, I really loved Russell Crowe's helmet. He had the old Joe. <laughs> that was one of the best yeah. parts of the movie. Yeah, that's right. It had the uh, the old school aesthetic. It did for sure. Yeah. So. Let's talk a little bit about the New York Rangers. Aye. So obviously, the New York Rangers came to play. Did the NHL actually give support to this movie? Yeah, well, we had the Pittsburgh Penguins in sudden death, and we have the same man to thank for the use of the New York Rangers. Howard Baldwin at the time still owned the pens. Ah. As such, he was able to convince the league to allow the Rangers to be used, and they held out hope that some of the players would be involved in the production. Uh, but that didn't happen. No, that was they weren't able to. No, they uh, the script's conceit of having an NHL team stop by midseason mm-hmm. that couldn't be worked out in real life. No, um, they tried to get the real Rangers involved. Uh, the helicopter scene, you know, maybe a couple of on ice cameos. Uh, it was no go. What with one with the schedule and uh, and two the Rangers themselves, they showed no interest. Right, which is a, a bit of a shame because there was some star power on that Rangers team then. They had. Uh, Wing Gretzky, right. Adam Graves, Imagine. Uh, Brian Leach, Mike Richter. So, uh, yeah, but they couldn't get the real guys involved. Um, as producers, Baldwin and his wife, Elise, brought Jay Roach, Jay, excuse me, Jay Roach aboard yeah. to direct. Uh, Roach uh, did the Austin Powers movies, uh, Meet the Parents, and he continues today. And again, he did a really solid job here. Uh, more importantly, Baldwin mined his hockey Hollywood connections to bring aboard the man whose movie this really is, David E. Kelly. Right, a guy who's in the Television Hall of Fame and actually has some real hockey credentials. Yeah, you're, you're correct, Chris. Yeah. Uh, the TV Hall of Fame part comes from winning 11 Emmy Awards. He started as a writer on L.A. Law, then went on to create Picket Fences, Chicago Hope, The Practice, Ali McBeal, wow. Boston Public, Boston Legal, uh, Big Little Lies on HBO uh, was his as well, just uh, from the last couple of years. It, it was uh, very well received. Uh, the hockey part comes from his dad. Jack Kelly coached the Boston University Terriers to back-to-back national titles, then moved on to become the first head coach general manager of the New England Whalers of the WHA. There, he won the inaugural Avco Cup championship and the Howard Baldwin Trophy as Coach of the Year. And that's the same Howard Baldwin right. that's now making this movie with, with his son. Uh, Kelly was inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame in 1993. His son David was stick boy for the Whalers, played at Princeton University, and spent a year playing pro in Switzerland. Despite his Boston roots and L.A. residency, Kelly is a Blackhawks fan. This is because his brother Mark is vice president of amateur scouting for Chicago. So for a project like this, his bona fides are just impeccable. Oh, no question. So with all of that, why did the movie bomb? Yeah, uh, this is a beloved and influential movie within the hockey community. Agreed. Yeah, and as we said before, many times box office is not always a good indicator of of the film's quality, uh, but it's how they keep score in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And bomb, this film did. Uh, It made back only $8 million dollars. On a $28 million budget. Ouch. Yeah, and uh, failed to secure an overseas release. Part of the blame lies with the (laughs) M-O-U-S-E. Disney didn't didn't know what it had. Uh, And it had trouble marketing the film. Was it a dramedy, a Mm. sports movie, an uplifting family film populated by lovably kooky eccentrics? So they dropped the ball. 
However, do you remember the very first two words of this movie? Fuck me. <laughs> I wanted Andy to bleep you and not me. <laughs> That's right, fuck me. And spoken by a five-year-old, no less. It's amazing. Yeah, well, that's always funny. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's it's an R rating guarantee. Yeah, right out of the right out of the box. Right out of the box. Box office poison yeah. for for so many films. And uh, the movie goes on to rival Slapshot for swearing. Yeah. Also, though, David E. Kelly, maniacally prolific TV creator and writer, only wrote a couple of films. As a matter of fact, Mystery Alaska was the last movie he ever wrote. I'm not sure if this even is a movie, but a TV pilot episode that does not does not get picked up for the season because there's way too much going on here. Uh, Kelly is renowned for writing really strong female roles, but here, many of the characters, they're just stereotypes. An example of that? Well, yeah, uh, Skank Marden is sleeping with his co-worker, who also happens to be the mayor's wife. Now, if you had 22 one-hour episodes in the TV season to explore the hows and whys of that relationship, <laughs> yeah. that might be an interesting story. Yeah. Here you have two hours, and it's dealt with in one two-minute scenes, one to two-minute scenes. Right. Uh, the mayor finds out and says, Skank Marden has been in this bed? Uh, and, and then uh, they go, uh, the next scene is in, uh, in his smelt shack. It's, it's beautiful, yeah. it's the Cadillac of smelt shacks. Oh, yeah, there's no smelt shack ever built like that uh, one. You know, yeah. Again, Chris, I'd like to live in this movie. Yeah, I totally agree. He, he talks to his wife then, and his wife says, you never touch me. And he doesn't touch her, he gives her a hanky. <laughs> and, and then Skank goes and talks to the mayor and says, listen, I'm sorry I banged your wife. My dad was an alcoholic, but I'm going to try hard to win this game for you because you're the mayor. <laughs> I had the same look on my face that Cole Meany, yeah. the actor playing the mayor, had on his. What the hell just happened? Yeah. yeah. And then during the big game, Skank takes a rocket to the nuts, the mayor nods approvingly, and a TV reporter who's smitten with Skank looks concerned. You know, that could have been a whole series on its own. Indeed, right? Yeah. So uh, another example is the whole Price World subplot. Right. Yeah, why? why? You know, did they think one courtroom scene was not enough? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, were the writers trying to tell us Walmart may be hazardous to small towns? Could have been. It was around that time. Yeah, I wonder what they'd think of Amazon. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. Again, over the course of a TV season, you know, this could have been an interesting storyline. But they waste the actor here. All he does is shout and swear. And, and that's a shame because that, that's Michael McKean, uh, perhaps best known as David St. Hubbins. From Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Yeah, yeah that's so right. the, the original rock mockumentary. Yeah. So there's a double feature for the listeners. Go back and watch Spinal Tap and then Hardcore Logo. And it, it'll be one of those rare times where the Canadian version of the story isn't the polite and nice version. Mm, interesting. Yeah. We got homework to do, folks. Andy, you listening? <laughs> um, so the end of the movie. I think the end of the movie really... Saves everything. Oh, definitely. It couldn't have went any other way, I don't think. It, it, it definitely, definitely right. The, uh, the losing at the end, but having two players leave with the Rangers for Binghamton in the A. Yeah, that was a bonus. See, and that follows in the sports movie tradition of losing, yet winning. Right. Friday Night Lights' Permian Tigers, yeah. the Bad News Bears, Rocky. Right. Yeah, they used a puck shooting machine after a dozen tries could not produce that right bounce. And it was so satisfying to see that puck not go in. Yeah. And again, Chris, we saw in Youngblood. It was, it was just a, the same shot of the puck fluttering. Yeah. And you knew in Youngblood that that puck was going in. 
And you've been trained by all the movies you watch to sort of expect that the puck is going to go in here. And when it doesn't, again, it yeah, it makes sense. I think it works perfect. They couldn't have made it so that they beat the New York Rangers. They tried everything they could. But when push comes to shove, that you have to lose to the New York Rangers. Indeed. Just to, just to kind of make it not realistic, but... Yeah, but a, a, yeah. a dab. A, a dab. Just a dab. A dab is a good word. Yeah. Well so I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and the shot, it was perfect. But as soon as it hit the, the upper part of the, of, the, of the crossbar, you knew where that you puck knew, was going to yeah, end. You know it wasn't going yeah, in. Yeah, it wasn't going in. So what about uh, the legacy, Terry? Where does this movie stand? Well, at first, I thought this movie's legacy was obvious. Outdoor NHL games. Yeah. However, while I've no doubt the optics of this film helped the NHL embrace outdoor hockey, there was another event that had much more influence on their decision to start playing outside. And what event was that? Well, the first outdoor NHL game of the modern era was a one-off, held in the parking lot of Caesars Palace in Las Vegas on September 27, 1991, the preseason matchup saw the Kings beat the Rangers 5-2. However, credit for the sudden surge in outdoor hockey goes not to the NHL, but to the NCAA. Correct. Yeah, the Cold War in October 2001. The University of Michigan Wolverines at Michigan State. The game was at Spartan Stadium, and it set a record, a then record for the largest crowd to watch a hockey game. Over 75,000. That's crazy. Yeah, I'd say NHL bigwigs saw that attendance number and immediately starting asking, how do we get in on that? Yeah. It is, that's, that's why I asked you earlier. It's surprising to see that there hadn't been any NHL outdoor games, so they brought in an NHL guy to help with the ice. He had never done it before, probably. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like I say, I don't know. The NHL gets uh, knocked a lot of times for maybe not being the most forward-thinking league. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but once they started in, uh, once they jumped into the, uh, to the outdoor games, yeah, they, they went in. They saw 75,000 They people. saw 75, and they, well, they went in full force because the, yeah. uh, the Heritage Classics, yeah. they started in 2003. Uh, there have been five, always between Canadian teams. Uh, the first had the Habs beating the Oilers at Commonwealth Stadium. There you go. The Winter Classics started in 2008 with the Penguins beating the hometown Sabres at the Ralph. Right. The stadium series commenced in 2014, with the Ducks beating the Kings at Dodger Stadium. Every game in those three series are the best attended NHL games ever. Yeah. It's not close. And, uh, and uh, Chris, your opinion on outdoor NHL hockey? Well, it's hard to argue with the fact that they're getting that many fans and the money that they make. And I think it's, it's important to document and, and, and have that as part of the history of the game, showing, showing youngsters the, the, the outdoor game kind yeah. of thing. You know, they, the people, and people in the States maybe who never grew up playing, playing outdoor hockey. Like you said, the first one was in Las Vegas yeah. in a parking lot. Yeah, in a parking lot, right? lot. yes. So like, I think that's really cool. I, I'm, I don't know if these games should be done as regular season games. When the conditions are perfect, yeah. I think it's okay. I mean, it's almost like they're playing in, in a stadium. The ice is perfect. The boards are regulation. The yeah. glass is the same. Sure. The sight lines are weird, though. There's, like, background things. There's glares. Uh, it's not built. Those stadiums aren't built for hockey. Right. Uh, if it snows or there's a little bit of freezing rain, or I believe there's been rain on a few occasions, yeah. I think it really affects the outcome of the game. And yeah. um so that's kind of the downfall of, of the outdoor games. But I, I love the fact that 
you know, you're getting 50 to 70,000 people in a stadium. I'm sure everyone's going to have a fun time yeah. no matter what. And it's good for the game indeed, to, for people to do that. Yeah. But I don't necessarily think um, it should be, you know, an important two points. I mean, in, yeah. in the NHL today, it's two points it, are big two points. points are big points. So indeed. that you're that'd right. be the only downfall. How, how do you feel about it? Uh, again, uh, never having seen it, uh, it, it looks good on TV. Yeah. Right, you know, wouldn't they, look they, good watching it. In the I, stadium, I, I, I that that would be my concern. Yeah. You know, uh, again, uh, if you're sitting in Spartan Stadium or Commonwealth Stadium, yeah, I, uh, you know, the football players, the uh, the Eskimos look kind of small. That's right. When you're in the stand, so uh, yeah, I think. Uh, but again, it's the party atmosphere, it's the event, yeah. and uh, good publicity, mm-hmm. and uh, lots again, of money, lots of money. Yeah, grow the game. Yeah, hard to argue. With. Hard to argue with that. So. Tell me, where do you think the legacy of this movie is, Terry? What is it? Well, uh, I think it's on television, uh, which is only proper, given David E. Kelly's Hall of Fame credentials. Hockey Day in Canada, a triple header of NHL games featuring the Canadian teams, wrapped around visits to a couple of cities, but mostly small towns all across the country. Mm -hmm. The annual broadcast started the year after this movie came out and has visited every province and territory since. The day-long event is the culmination of a week's festivities that took months of preparation to show the host location's best face to the nation. The show traffics in the same nostalgia-laden emotions and simpler times ideals Mystery Alaska promotes. Hockey is more than a game. It's an identity. And at a local level, you can still find the spirit of the game and its outdoor, sticks-in-boys roots. Local heroes, memory lane, stand on guard for thee, then sit back and watch the best there is play our game. Like Skank Murden said, hockey, it's one of the two most fun things to do in cold weather. Terry Whalen, amazing job as usual. Thank you so much for coming in and uh, again, just absolutely destroying the breakdown of this movie. It's I, uh, awesome. Ne- never, uh, uh, never a chore, Chris. Never yeah. a chore. Lots no. of fun. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it so again already. So let's stay tuned. Do you want to say what the next movie's going to uh, be? I can't say that right now. All right. Well, I'll, make a, I'll announce that You'll at announce some that. point you on bet. the podcast. Again, Terry, thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. That was Across the Pond, and that's a wrap. All right. Thank you to our amazing sponsors. As always, The Big Bite. Yardley Brothers Beer, Ben Marin's Photography, Sunset Studio, Print House Limited, and Asia Sports Tech. Finally, thank you to Lauren Orris and Fiona Chow, who have helped us as advisors and liaisons to Hong Kong's hockey world. To support the podcast, check out our amazing merchandise on our website at acrossthepondhk.com. Check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Across the Pond HK. 